Well, church, if you're going to grab your Bible with me and turn to the Gospel of John, Gospel of John chapter 12. If you're looking at the black Bible in the chair in front of you, that's found on page 898. And let me encourage you to follow along as we read God's Word. If you're new to the Bible, the larger numbers on those pages are the chapter divisions. So we're looking at chapter 12, and the smaller numbers are the verse the divisions of those chapters. Uh, and as always, we want to remind you that if you don't own a Bible uh, that you can read at your home, that black Bible in the chair in front of you is our gift to you. Please take it, read it, ask questions. We'd love to talk with you more about what you're reading if you have any questions. A couple of years ago, Katie and I were in Thailand, and when we were in Thailand, I remember coming around a corner when we were confronted with a 50-foot golden Buddha. Uh, it was hard to miss. And it seemed like everywhere, everywhere we went in Bangkok, Thailand, we were confronted with idols, Buddhas, and people offering incense to these idols, and people offering prayers to these idols. It was everywhere. And then we came home. I wonder if you think that idolatry is kind of reserved for places in the world like Thailand. Or let me ask you, would you say that you are an idolater? In John 11, which we looked at last week, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It's amazing. And in so doing, he put on display his glory and the glory of the Father. He put on display his love and his power. What an encouragement. That, that, that knowing who Jesus is, we can have hope even in the most of hopeless situations because our God tells death what to do. And it's also a reminder a reminder of something that we've seen over and over all throughout John's gospel, the truth that true life is found in Christ and in him alone. John's gospel has been just on repeat saying that over and over and over again, that true life is found in Jesus and him alone. And so we say amen. But... Over and against that truth about Jesus and him being the one who holds life, there are idols. There are God substitutes. An idol is anything that we love, trust, or uh, value more than God. An idol is anything that we can't live without and that we are willing to break the rules to get or to protect. So in that sense... Idols are not just limited to little golden statues. An idol can be anything that we bow down to, whether it's money or pleasure or comfort or success or the praise of man. There are lots of idols. John Calvin once said our hearts are idol factories. Our failure as human beings to acknowledge God, to honor God, to treasure God as God, leaves the human heart darkened. But Paul says in Romans 1, verse 20. And it leaves the human heart vulnerable. We once found security in God. When we don't acknowledge him as God, our hearts are vulnerable. No wonder then we as human beings are grasping for idols, God's substitutes, 
Because these God substitutes, they promise life. They promise purpose and joy and success and meaning and, and, and security. And these same idols that promise life also promise that we can retain control of our lives if we just worship them. You can have life and you can have control. Now, it's a lie from hell. It's not true. Only Jesus gives life. But the idea of having life and control is so appealing to us that we often give our hearts to idols. Now, for you, Leave, when you leave here today and you drive down 301, you're going to see all along both sides of the highway what's known as a guardrail. And they're called guardrails because they, they're meant to protect or to keep the car that you're in from drifting off the highway into the ditch. As we've gone through John's gospel, John chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, John has put us as a a, a Christian, he has put us on the highway, the highway that true life is found in Christ, in him alone. So we find ourselves as a follower of Christ on that highway. But what are the guardrails that will keep us as Christians from swerving into the ditch of idolatry? What are the guardrails that will keep us from swerving into the ditch and into death? In other words, how can we guard, guard our life for eternal life? That's the question I want us to consider this morning in John 12. How can we guard our life for eternal life? And if you're taking notes, point number one is this. Esteem the right thing. Point number one, esteem the right thing. And we're going to see this in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. So let's, let's turn to God's word together. Chapter 12, verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only, to a, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. We'll stop there. So the setting of chapter 12 begins at a dinner party in Bethany, the same place that we were in last week in chapter 11. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. It's the house, it's the hometown of of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And and so Jesus is the honored guest at this dinner party. And notice in verse 1 that John begins verse 1 this way. Six days before the Passover, that's the setting, 
Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Now, when you're reading the Bible and you see the conjunction, therefore, you have to stop. You have to consider what came beforehand in the text because it's basing a conclusion based on what was said previously. So we can't just jump into chapter 12, verse 1, and ignore what happened in chapter 11. Again, the big event in chapter 11 was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Look back with me in your Bibles at chapter 11, verse 45. This is after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, John writes, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, Jesus, did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're nervous. Remember, Jesus did not resuscitate Lazarus. He was not really good at CPR. He raised Lazarus's rotting corpse from the dead after his funeral, four days after his funeral. And so it's hard to get around the miracle when the evidence is that stubborn. Because the evidence is Lazarus walking around saying, yep, here I am. <laughs> Pretty hard to deny that miracle. And so word gets out and many, there's a buzz in the air. Many are believing in Jesus because of what he did, what the sign pointed toward about who Jesus is. And yet, here in chapter, at the end of chapter 11, we see the hard-hearted Pharisees and high priests refuse to rethink their attitude or their stance toward Jesus despite the overwhelming evidence. Why? Again, according to verse 48, Jesus was a threat to them. He was a threat to their place and their nation. Matthew 23 reminds us that the the Pharisees loved the view from the top. And they were at the top of the religious leadership chart, right? They loved being seen by others. They loved having the place of honor and the best seats at the table. They loved respectful greetings. And as Jesus has already warned in John 5, verse 44, a love for the praise of man left unchecked A love for the praise of man will make it impossible for us to believe and trust in Christ. Why? Because we cannot serve two masters. Jesus is not okay with us serving two masters. He's not okay with spiritual adultery. He wants us and he wants us for himself and he's right to do that. And so... From that day on, the Pharisees and the high priests were told made plans to put him to death. Chapter 11, verse 53. Now skip down to chapter 11, verse 57. The high priests, or the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So in the air, there are plans to arrest Jesus. In the air, there are plans to put him to death. And then that's how chapter 11 ends. And then chapter 12, verse 1 says, Jesus 
therefore. Don't miss that. He knew what was happening. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. Church, see the love of Christ in this. See the courage of Jesus Christ. He knows the suffering that's about to happen in his path of obedience. And yet he steps right into it. He came to Bethany knowing. He came to Be- there, was, there was a rest and a death order, and he came, therefore, to Bethany. Jesus is the guest of honor at the dinner party. And at this dinner party, we see Martha in her typical fashion. What's she doing? Serving the meal. We see Lazarus. No longer is he in the tomb. He's having dinner with Jesus. And Mary, what's she doing? When she enters the scene in verse 3, verse 3 says that she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Now, you've got to imagine, uh, in the Middle East, in the first century, they don't sit at chairs with their feet underneath them. They would recline on their arm and their feet would be behind them on the ground. And so it's very easy for Mary to come from behind and be at his feet and anoint his feet like that. So that's, that's kind of the scene. Nard is an, a, an oil that is extracted from a, a, a plant that grows in India. And from that plant, um, they would make a very, very expensive perfume. Not a, I bought a nice bottle of perfume at Macy's expensive, but a pound of nard would have the value of an entire year's salary. That's expensive. You do the math. Mary's act of taking this expensive perfume and anointing his feet and preparing him for burial reminds us how love behaves. Love does not dwell on the cost of expressing itself towards another. Love delights to give in order to show how prized that person is. But not everyone saw her act of generosity and devotion and worship the same way that Jesus does. When Judas Iscariot sees what she's doing, he's disgusted. Verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? <gasps> and, and when you listen to Judas... I mean, he sounds really honorable. It sounds like Judas is really concerned, and this is a waste, and he's trying to care for the poor. It sounds honorable. It sounds noble, right? But if you go down that path, John stops you and gives an editorial comment in verse 6 so that we don't miss it. Verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor. Why? But because he was a thief. He was concerned about money. If the Pharisees and the high priest esteemed the praise of man, the best seats in the synagogue. Judas esteemed wealth more than Jesus. He's on the same path of making the same error that the rich young ruler made in Matthew 19. He could have had Jesus, but he chose money instead. Money's more valuable to me. Now, because Greed is so common. I think sometimes we as Americans um, pass over greed as if it's a respectable sin, as if there is a category for respectable sin. You know, we, we, we imagine, well, everybody does it. It's all around, so we're not even really ashamed to talk about it in public. 
Um, you know, everyone does it. But I think Jesus has a different attitude and a warning for us about greed. Left unchecked, greed leads us to live as if this world and all that this world has to offer us, greed leads us to live as if this world's ultimate, as if this world is it. Greed leads us to love the gifts more than the giver of those gifts. That's why the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 verse 5 refers to, refers to greed as idolatry. We all love, trust, and obey something. If it's not God, it might be money or material possessions. Judas greed uh, would be idolatry, and Judas' greed would cause him to drift away from the road of, of Christ being the only source of life, and it would lead him into death and hell. The Pharisees and the high priests, their love for the praise of man would become an idol that would cause them to swerve off the road of Christ who is life and drift into a road of unbelief and ending up murdering the Son of God. Greed and praise, friends, greed and the praise of man are deadly idols that we must not overlook. To guard our life for eternal life, we must esteem the right thing. What does your heart esteem this morning? What does your heart value? In contrast to Judas and the Pharisees and high priests, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus serve as a positive example of three people who get it right. They esteem, they value, they treasure Christ above everything else. And so we, like them, should esteem Christ above everything else. That's the command, the implicit command here. But how do we do that? How do we grow in our love and esteem for Jesus? Sometimes when you hear the Bible commanding you to love something, it feels like somebody's saying to you, love your vegetables. How? I hate vegetables. How do we love Christ above everything else? How do we esteem him and value him and treasure him above all else? Well, let me make two observations from this text that I think help us to grow in our esteem of Christ. First of all, look at Lazarus. In verse 9, we're told that a large crowd had come, yes, to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. I mean, this is big news. The dude was in the grave for four days. Now he's up walking around having dinner with Jesus. And so if we could kind of transport that event 2,000 years ago to today, man, NBC, ABC, CBS, and every other TV news agency would be lining up for interviews with Lazarus. He'd have offers for a, a new book about what happened to him. There would be Hollywood movie deals for Lazarus knocking at his door. And yet, I want us to notice how Lazarus responds to the fact that Jesus Raised him up from the dead. Look at verse two. What's Lazarus doing? Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. He could have all the money, all the fame, all the red carpet that he wanted. 
He can have it all. He can have the world. And yet Lazarus is content. He chooses fellowship with Jesus over all those things. In fact, he's not just saying, well, you know, Jesus raised me to the dead. The least I could do is, you know, have some, a meal with him. No, 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 no. He's not begrudging. He, he is open. He's risking his life by openly associating with Jesus. They're out to kill Jesus. They're out to kill Lazarus. And he's like, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. And so he openly associates with Jesus at the risk of his life. Why? Because he sees the all-surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Do you? Do you? Now, you might hear me ask that question and think, well, that's not a fair question, Zach. I mean... If Jesus raised me from the dead after my, four days after my funeral, then, yeah, I would love Jesus like Lazarus did. That's a huge miracle. That's not a fair example. But, friends, if you are a Christian, you have been raised from the dead. <laughs> Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I would, I would argue that your resurrection, your resurrection from your death is more glorious than Lazarus' physical resurrection. It's more significant so yes, I, I, I'll be the first to agree. Treasuring Christ above everything else, it requires a heart change because it's not natural for us to do these things. But that heart change happened to you, Christian, the moment that you were born again. And God put his spirit in your life. So our love for Christ and esteeming him above everything else is it's already true of us. If you're a Christian, you, that's true of you. But yet your love for him and your esteem for him grows the same way that Lazarus is growing it. By choosing Jesus above everything else and choosing fellowship with Jesus on a regular basis through the normal means of grace. Reading your Bible. Praying on your own praying with your family, gathering with your church and praying like we're doing this Wednesday, singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs like we just did this morning, gathering with the people of God like we're doing right now. God uses these normal means of grace as we sit under his word to grow us in our love and esteem for Jesus. Why? Because in doing these things, God is revealing himself to us through his word. Pray that's encouraging for us. But after Lazarus, there's another encouragement for how we can grow in our esteem for Christ. Look at Martha. What's Martha doing? Serving dinner. And Mary, what's she doing? Sitting at Jesus' feet with perfume. Now, one thing I think it's helpful to keep in mind is that at an earlier dinner party that you'll see in Luke chapter 10, you see the exact same job assignments. <laughs> In Luke 10, there's Mary, there's Martha, there's a dinner party. What's Martha doing? Serving dinner. What's Mary doing? Sitting at Jesus' feet. 
But what's different about these two dinner parties is in Luke 10, Martha is anxious. Martha is angry. Martha is discontent. At one point, she comes to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. You ever feel that in your heart? Then you transport to John 12, another dinner party. Martha's still serving dinner. Mary's still sitting at Jesus' feet. But Martha's a new woman. Martha is no longer discontent. She's no longer anxious. She's no longer angry. What happened? Chapter 11 happened. In chapter 11, remember, Jesus comes to Martha and he grows her faith. He She's walked with Jesus through the pain of her brother dying. And as she walked with Jesus through that, she'd come to experience the power and authority and love of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. She had good theology. Now she's come to know Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Martha had come to know and experience God's love. And so Mary's gift is extravagant. It's expensive, and she's right to do it. Jesus actually affirms her expensive gift. Her costly gift reminds us that Jesus is worthy of all of us. Not half our bank account, not half our schedule, not half our boyfriend or half our girlfriend or half our schedule or half our job or half our family or half our heart. No, 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 no. He is worthy of all of us. So Mary was right to give that extravagant gift. It was not a waste. But I also want us to notice, as we compare Martha and Mary, I want us to notice how God's grace changes things. God's grace, in chapter 11 and 12, frees Martha from the need to compete with her sister. That's what made her discontent in the first place. She was trying to earn God's love. She was trying to make herself worthy of Jesus by her, her, her working fervently in the kitchen. And listen, it's good for her that she was doing that. If, if she didn't serve the meal, no one would have eaten. But, but what, what the change is in her heart. And, and experiencing God's grace, knowing now that Christ loves her fully, not because of her performance, has transformed her serving a meal into an act of worship. An act of worship as extravagant as Mary's gift is. Do you see that? Friends, knowing that we've already been, knowing that we're already loved by God in Christ. He loves you fully, not because of your performance, but because of his grace. What that does in our hearts is it says, I don't need the spotlight anymore. I don't need to be the center of attention anymore. I don't need the praise of man anymore. I want, I'm, it sets us free to actually serve others rather than use them. It sets us free to put the spotlight on where it belongs, on God. And it transforms everything that we do, even the mundane things like washing dishes or going, doing our schoolwork or going to the office. It transforms those mundane things into glorious acts of worship done with a, a content and joyful heart. That's what happened in Martha. So again, let me ask you, friends, what do you esteem? What gets you out of bed in the morning each, each day of the week? Are you esteeming, valuing, treasuring the right thing? True life is found in Christ alone. So pray for us 
pray for us as a church that we would consider everything else as rubbish in comparison with the all-surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Pray that we grow as a church in that way. But what if you are asked that question and you look inside and you realize, oh man, I'm more like Judas than Martha. I'm more like these Pharisees than Mary or, or Lazarus. What if, what if you've noticed you kind of veered off the path and you're starting to head for the ditch? You've been loving and trusting and, 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 and obeying something other than God. What do you do? Point number two, embrace the call to come and die. Point number two, embrace the call to come and die. And that's chapter 12, verses 12 through 36. And friends, let me just say it ahead of time. If you are listening to a preacher from a pulpit or online or TV or the radio who does not call you to die as Jesus does, stop listening to them. It's a false gospel. Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him, when he, was, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him and was there was that they heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, you, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Verses 12 through 19 are, what no, are what's known as the triumphal entry. The section heading on your Bible actually might read that way. And so you'll see this scene where there's palm branches and, and people shouting, Hosanna. The palm branches are, are kind of our equivalent of the red carpet. Um, they are a symbol of victory for the king. So this is, this is celebratory. And the crowds, we hear them shouting, Hosanna, which, which comes from Psalm 118. It's, it's a word that means, God save us. God save us now. Save us from what? Well, in declaring Jesus as the king of Israel, they expect Jesus to come in and to save them from Rome. They're under Rome's thumb at this point. And so the truth is that Jesus is the king. And he doesn't stop them when they say, you're the king of Israel. Hosanna! He does not stop them. He receives that praise because it's fitting. He is the king. But he does not come in the way that they expect the king, the Christ, the Messiah to come. He doesn't come on a war horse with a grenade launcher strapped on his back. He comes riding on a young donkey. Why? To fulfill what the prophet Zechariah said in Zechariah 9.9, that the king would come with salvation, but he would come gentle or humble. 
Jesus' own disciples don't even understand what's going on at this point. They, they have the same expectations for the Messiah that the crowds did. They don't get it until after Jesus rose from the dead. Most people missed Jesus at this point because they, he didn't fit their expectations. The Pharisees decided to kill Jesus to protect their place and their nation. But what's interesting is that by 70 AD, some 30 plus years after this event, their place, the temple, would be destroyed anyway. And their nation would perish anyway. And they would lose their place and they would lose their nation not because of Jesus. But as D.A. Carson notes, it was was because of the constant mad search for political solutions where there was little spiritual renewal. I think that's right, and I think it's an appropriate warning for us about the danger of political idolatry. Political idolatry that can happen on the right and political idolatry that can happen on the left. And friends, I just want to say as one of your pastors, as important as politics are, they cannot bring about the heart change that needs to happen in a person's life. We, and so friends, we do not need, we do not need to panic about who's in office. We should care, but we don't need to panic. And we must never, church, we must never worship or bow down or trust the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, or any political party. Because we serve a king who is on his throne, who rules, and he alone changes hearts. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor me. So keep the setting in mind. This is, this is the time of the Passover, which means that thousands and thousands, perhaps millions of people will be traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. In verse 20, we see that mixed with these Jewish crowds were Greeks. Greek-speaking Gentiles. Gentiles, non-Jew, it's us, right? Greek-speaking Gentiles who, and they came, and what do they want? We want to see Jesus. What a great request. Now, it's very likely that they ended up meeting with Jesus, had the meeting that they requested, but we don't know. John doesn't tell us that because that's not his focus. John's focus is on how Jesus will reveal himself, not just to these Greeks, but how he will reveal himself to the world. Friends, like a crowd in, that, 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 that is watching the countdown attentively of a rocket that's about to launch. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. 
as they, as they watch this countdown, John's gospel has been counting down for us. Three times already in John's gospel, he's mentioned it wasn't Jesus' hour yet. It wasn't Jesus' hour yet. It was not his hour yet. But now we come to verse 23. Look what it says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is what, they, this is what we've been looking for all through John's gospel. The hour has come. And so the palm branches are appropriate, but with the palm branches out and the messianic fervor, the crowds, well, we know what they think being glorified means. They think political might, military might. They think, ooh, operation shock and awe, baby. Here we go. And that's what makes verse 24 so shocking. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. They expect, boom, military might. And Jesus says, the way I'm going to be glorified, verse 23, is by dying. Jesus is very clear that he is the grain of wheat that must die. First the cross, then the crown. He is the king, but first the cross, then the crown. And his death will result in much fruit. His death and his resurrection will result in the salvation, not just of the Jews, but of Greeks too. Of people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. His cross will be, the, not that will be for the salvation of the world. He will be the one who will gather the scattered people of God, the scattered sheep. He will gather them together through his cross and resurrection, his death and resurrection. To the Greeks who wish to see Jesus in the life that he came to give, to those here today who wish to see Jesus in the life that he came to give, Jesus then turns after talking about himself in verse 24 to then tell us what we must do in verse 25. Look with me. At verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's a pr provocative statement. It's meant to make you think. What's he saying there? What's he mean? The, the word for keep here in verse 25 is a word that means to protect or to guard. To protect or to guard. Friends, if the 60, 70, 80 years that you have on this world are ultimate, if your time here on this earth is everything, if that's how you see life, you will sweat, toil, fight, and claw your way to get everything that this world has to offer. Money, success, pleasure, fame. And any measure of achievement in gaining what the world has to offer, you will then protect it at all costs. It'll keep you up at night. Why? Because in that way of thinking, this world is it. 60, 70, 80 years, you die, then you turn into worms. That's it. So we got to eat, drink, and be merry. We've got we to we milk this world for all it is. But what Jesus is reminding us here is that this world, life on this earth, is not the end. It's not the whole picture. There is zero profit in gaining the whole world and yet losing your soul. 
And so Jesus warns us, whoever loves his life, get, 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 get as much as I can. Whoever loves his life loses it. In contrast, and this is what's surprising, in contrast, we guard our life, we keep our life for eternal life. How? By hating it. By hating our life in this world. Now listen, that does not mean that we're supposed to walk around with our heads down, loathing ourselves for what clods we are. That's not what that means. As one writer explains, hating your life means recognizing that living for yourself will never supply what you really want out of life. Only when Christ assumes total control over your life, only when God becomes your everything and self becomes nothing, only when your love for God is so great that your self-love becomes as hate by comparison, only then will you truly find and keep yourself for eternal life. Now, some may hear this and think, well, listen, I'm not, like, I'm not like that. I know that this life is not everything. I'm at church today. I believe in God, so that's, that's not me. Friends, be careful. You don't have to be an atheist to live like an atheist. Judas was Jesus' disciple. The Pharisees and the high priests were religious leaders, But Judas, the Pharisees, and the high priest functioned as if life on earth was ultimate. They professed God with their mouth, but they lived like atheists. And because they loved their life, they lost it. In contrast, verse 26 reminds us that being a Christian means following Jesus. Where is Jesus going? He's going to the cross. The cross is not some pretty thing that you wear around your neck. The cross is an instrument of death, of execution. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Man, this part of the sermon sounds really gloomy, right? Maybe you're sitting here thinking, embracing the call to die. I mean, this is 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 Christianity one lifelong funeral procession, gloom and doom. Far from it. I think what Jesus is after is what he talks about in Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it and and when a man found and covered it up, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. How can the man in Matthew thirteen forty four sell all that he has? In other words, give his life up. And how can he do that with joy? Because of the, what's in the field. By, by giving up all that he has, he gets the field. And what's in the field? Oh, a priceless treasure. And knowing that, he knows he gets the better deal. And so he gives up his life with joy. That's what Jesus is talking about. The call to die is hard. It's difficult. But it's, it's, it's the way that we guard our life 
for eternal life, to guard our life for what's infinitely valuable, what's truly life. So let me ask you this morning what I'm asking myself this morning. What in you needs to die this morning? What in you as an individual Christian needs to die this morning? What in us corporately as a church needs to die this morning? Selfishness? Envy? Greed? Lust? Partiality? And insisting on our own way? Sinful anger? The fear of man, the the desperate need of approval, some secret sin that no one knows about. What in you needs to die this morning? Friends, bring it to God. Take time today or tomorrow to confess it to another church member that you know and trust. Guard your life by putting sin to death. And don't act tough like, I got this, I can, I, can, I, can, I can take and embrace this call to die. I've read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's easy. It ain't easy. It's difficult. It's hard. And it can feel terrifying. It can feel impossible when we actually are confronted with this call of Jesus. But again, I want us to notice the encouragement that John then gives us when we need it most. After this, this difficult call to die, he gives us encouragement starting in verse 27. Look at 27. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Listen, Jesus has already referred to himself uh, in verse 24 as the grain of wheat that must be put into the ground and die. And that prospect of what what lies before him, he is not indifferent to that. He is not unaffected by that. He says in verse 27, now, now is my soul troubled. He's in agony. His soul is in turmoil over the pain, over the mockery, over the wrath of God that he will bear on the cross in just a few days. He sees it coming. And his soul is troubled. So if he sees it coming and his soul is troubled, what in the world keeps him on this path, this terrible path that has agony? What keeps him on this path? Well, it's not that he has his own crimes that he has to answer for. He is the sinless son of God. And he doesn't stay on this path because there's no other way out. In Matthew 26, 53, he he says, "If, if all I have to do is say the word, And God will send thousands or legions of angels to to pull me out of this mess and spare me. So it's not because of his sin. It's not because there's no other way out. So why not just cut ties and say, well, listen, this is is tough. 
this is their mess. Let them take responsibility for themselves. Why doesn't he say that? Why doesn't he just let us clean up our own mess with our own sin? Because verse 27 says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. His death was not an accident. The salvation of sinners through his death and resurrection was God's plan from the very beginning. And God's thundering voice confirms that. The encouragement, I think, for us here is, the, is, is seeing the heart of God. Jesus stayed on that path, not because he had to. He stayed on that path, that awful path that led to the cross because of love. Love for sinners like you and me. And love for his father and a desire for his glory. To embrace the call to die is daunting, but we need to remember that we follow the one who loves us more than we can imagine. There's a second encouragement that comes in verse 31. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So in verse 31 and 32, Jesus is going to highlight three accomplishments that the cross will achieve. First, God judges the world through the cross. Now is the judgment of the world, he says. And I think this, part of what he's saying is that we, we sometimes think lightly about our sin, right? It's bad, but not that bad. I mean, everybody, everybody sins, and so we kind of belittle it. But the cross exposes the evil of our sin. Now is the judgment of the, of the world. That now refers to the cross. When you look at the cross, you see how awful our sin actually is because it took nothing less than the death of the sinless son of God to fix the problem of our sin. Seeing sin for what it is, seeing God's judgment of our sin, encourages us to put our sin to death. The second accomplishment of the cross is that God destroys the devil through the cross. He says, now the ruler of this world, that's Satan, will be cast out. Again, now refers to the cross. There at the cross, Jesus canceled the power of sin and canceled the power of Satan over the believer. This is why it's important, because if you are a Christian, you have already died with Christ. Romans 6, verse 4, we were buried, therefore with him by baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is what we saw earlier this morning in the baptism. We were buried with Christ. That's past tense. If you're a Christian, you've already died with Christ. Your old self has died with him. And, and part of what you need to remember is that when you hear Jesus saying, that you, you, you embrace the call to die, you've already died. That's your position. And so when Jesus says in, in texts like Luke 9.23, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily and follow him, what he's saying is, don't do it again. He's just saying, this is who you are. Your old life is dead. Now you are alive with Christ. Now live like it. This is your position. Now live like it daily, daily, daily take up your cross. Daily deny yourself. Daily follow him. 
And so that, I think, helps us and encourages us because it's, when you hear the call to die, it's not this new thing. It's, it's a, if you're a Christian, it's, it's to continue what is already true of you in Christ. The third thing the cross accomplishes is this, that Jesus will draw all people to himself. By all, Jesus does not mean all people without exception. He's not a universalist. He means all people without distinction. Every tribe, nation, tongue, people, group. He will save more than the Jews because he will be lifted up on the bloody cross, because he will be lifted up from the dead in his resurrection, because he will be lifted up and ascend to the right hand of the Father. Jesus will save his sheep, every one of them. And no one will snatch a sheep from his hand. The Pharisees and the high priests may arrest him. Judas may betray him. They may, they may put all their efforts into trying to thwart the effort of Jesus. And they may kill him. But every attempt to stop Jesus in the end becomes the very thing that God uses to accomplish his purpose. You can't stop God. The cross of Christ will accomplish these things and they will accomplish them fully. And for that reason, church, we can trust Jesus when he calls us to die. His plan will not fail. He will raise us up. As Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Verse 34, we're almost done. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man will be lifted up, must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know what he, where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Friends, knowing God's heart of love that we saw in verses 27 through 30, knowing that God's plan will not fail like we saw in 31 through 33, how are we to respond? Jesus makes it clear in verse 36. While you have the light, that is Jesus, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian, so glad that you're here with us this morning. I pray that you trust and believe in Jesus this morning. There's an urgency to Jesus' words. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. And he says, the cross of Christ is where the world is judged. The cross is where Satan is cast out. The the cross is where Christ makes his enemies his friends. Christ died and rose again for our salvation. And those who see him will not just see him as the light of the world, they will become sons of light. Part of what that means is you will not, if you trust in Christ, you will not be condemned with the world because Christ was condemned in your place. Satan will have nothing to accuse you of any longer because In Christ, at the cross, he has cast Satan out of the courtroom. And because of the cross, Jesus will lead you all the way home. So trust in him. Church, trust in him. Guard your life for eternal life by trusting in him. Let's pray together.